We have been going through a red letter study. We are in the fourth installment, and I will probably stop counting after a while because the number is going to get so big. But, um, but this is the, uh, the words of Jesus. We're not going through in actual order. We are harmonizing the four Gospels, so we're moving back and forth between them uh, to try to come up with a... Uh, yeah, somewhat coherent narrative as we go, but we're, we're more topical than just verse by verse. But we're using those red letters, and for those of you who have Bibles, that the words of Jesus are printed in red ink. You know what we're talking about, the actual words of Jesus. So we'll be using those to try to understand more and more of what Jesus' message really is from an Aramaic point of view. What is he trying to tell us? What's he trying to get across? What are the most important aspects that we need to know that can help us to take this journey that he's encouraging us, you know, begging us all to take, a journey that will take us all the way to the truth that will make us free. We've been talking about kingdom because at the very outset, We need to know what kingdom is. If we do not know what kingdom is, we will never be able to get close to the actual meaning of Jesus' teaching and his message. And it's probably not too much of a stretch to say that everything that Jesus taught was trying to get the notion of kingdom across to his first listeners because they expected kingdom to be an actual political and and, uh, physical kingdom that would reestablish Israel's sovereignty. We expect kingdom to be heaven of the afterlife. Neither are correct. You know, The Jews at least understood kingdom to be here and now, which it is, but it's not a place. It's actually a quality of life, a quality of presence. It's a way of living life that brings everything into focus, the unseen and the seen that we were talking about a little while ago, and the interconnectedness of everyone and everything. It's that quality of living, actually seeing life with a father's eyes that Jesus is trying to bring us to. And so last week we were talking about him calling his first followers. And if you recall, Andrew and another one of John the Baptist's followers peel off to follow Jesus as he's walking by them on the banks of the Jordan. And Jesus at one point realizes he's being followed, turns around, and he says, what do you seek? You know, this is the genius of Jesus, always asking the most on-point, penetrating, incisive question, the question that we need to hear, the question that is going to take us, if we're willing, like a laser-guided missile to the heart of the thing, what do you seek? You're here following me. Do you know what it is that you want? Do you know what it is that you deeply desire? Why are you taking this trek? And, of course, that's what we need to ask ourselves. And then we fast-forwarded to Jesus entering Jerusalem by the Sheep's Gate and coming to the pool at Bethesda, where, according to legend, the waters would be stirred up by angels from time to time. And the first one in the pool after the waters were stirred would be healed of whatever it is that they needed to be healed from. And so there were infirm people, of course, laying around the pool 24-7, waiting for that moment. And Jesus comes in and sees a man who's been there for 38 years. We're not told what he's got. He's just infirm but 38 years, and Jesus asks him the question of questions. Do you wish to get well? Now, he can't even answer the biggest no-brainer of all time, right? He can't just say yes. He has to say, well, there's no one to put me in the pool, and he starts making all these, these excuses. And finally, Jesus says, just pick up your pallet and walk. 
And when he calls his first followers, they drop their nets at the shore in their boats, leave their nets, leave their father and follow him. These two questions, what do you seek? Do you wish to get well? And if you don't know what you seek yet, at least do you wish to get better? Do you wish to get whole? Do you wish to get complete? Do you wish for the hurting to stop? You know, do you at least know that much? And if you do, then leave your nets, which is everything that you think you know, everything that you rely on, your security. It's, it's your job. It's your skill set. It's your support system. Are you willing to place that on the floor for a while? Get that all cleared out so you can see what's actually in front of you. And pick up your palette. What does the palette represent? It represents our victimhood. It represents all the reasons why not, all the excuses that we have to stay put. Are you willing to drop your nets and pick up your palette, clean and clear the mechanism so that you can move in a direction and see what's really there? This is the price of following Jesus. There is no other way to do this. And this is what Jesus is trying to say. When those first two followers can't answer the what do you seek question, but simply ask him, where are you staying, Lord? He just says, come and see. Again, the perfect answer. Come and see. Leave your nets, pick up your pallet, and move in the direction of wellness. Move in the direction of wholeness. Come and see what may be possible. You know, where's the rub? Well, it's scary to do that. It's risky to do that. We all want certainty. We all want to know exactly where we're going. We want our GPS on so we can see right where we're going to head up. And we're going to know where the pitfalls are, where the potholes are, where the wrong turns are. We want to know all that stuff. And so we want our questions answered. We want to figure it out. But Jesus doesn't give us any of that. Just come and see. There's a great story from the Desert Father tradition. These are the, the Desert Fathers and Mothers who left their towns and villages in the Eastern Mediterranean, went out into the desert right at the time that Christianity was becoming the state religion of Rome because that's when it made absolutely no sense to them anymore. It had become so institutionalized and so powerful that it didn't have any relevance to their spiritual quest. And so they went out into the desert, either as hermits or as, as, as it was the beginning of the monast uh, monastic movement in Christianity, to try to find again what made sense. And so out of that tradition comes a little story where uh, a hermit comes from one monastery and goes to another to uh, visit Abbot Theodorus, who is well known as an elder. And he says, you know, I know precisely what the objective of life is. I know what I'm supposed to do. I know how I'm supposed to please God. I know all of these things. But I, even so, I can't seem to be able to do what I need to do. And so Theodorus is silent for a while and then looks at him and he says, you know, there's a city on the far side of the sea, you know, but you haven't yet packed your bags, you haven't found the ship, and you haven't made the crossing yet. So what good does it do to speculate about its streets and how to walk through them. He says, take the journey and everything else will be added to the journey. Take the journey. Come and see. We want to know everything beforehand. Jesus is not going to give us that because it's not about the knowledge. It's not intellectual. 
It's about coming and seeing. It's about moving out. It's about risking something and finding out if it is trustworthy, if it catches you. That's what this is all about. And there is no substitute for that. Remember the great story of Nicodemus in John 3? Where we get John 3.16 from. All right? So Nicodemus is trying to figure it out. He's trying to get all the answers he needs because this is high risk for him. Let's take a look at John 3, starting right at verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night, that's an important little detail, and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Great exchange here. And so here's this ruler of the Jews. Literally, he was a member of the Sanhedrin. You know, the 72-member body that ruled um, Jewish law, ruled, ruled the temple system, ruled the Jews as much as the Romans would let them at this point in history, right? He was also a Pharisee, one of the four main sects, S-E-C-T-S, of uh, Israel, and a rabbi, a teacher. But he comes by night. Why does he come by night? Oh, he's scared. He doesn't want anyone to see him. You can imagine him with his prayer shawl over his head so no one can see his face. And he's skulking around by night, but he goes to Jesus' door and wants to have an audience with him, wants to ask him these questions, but he wants to do it safely. He doesn't want to lose his status. He doesn't want to be persecuted. Jesus is not popular already at this time with the Jewish authorities. But by the end of John, by John 19, it is Nicodemus and it's Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph goes to Pilate and asks for the body after Jesus dies on the cross. And it's granted to him. And he and Nicodemus take the body and bury it in the tomb because they are secret followers of Jesus. And Nicodemus is said to have brought a hundred pounds of myrrh and aloes for the body. A hundred pounds. Now, many scholars have just scoffed at that and said, a hundred pounds, that would be enough for 200 bodies, you know, in terms of how much you would actually need. And you'd need a mule to carry it. There was no way that he could bring, you know, they're coming up with all the reasons why not, right? But there are also many stories of rulers, kings, great teachers, when they died and were buried, huge amounts of myrrh and aloes and other ointments were brought as a sign of the greatness of this person's stature in their lives, what he meant to them. So whether Nicodemus actually brought 100 pounds, the Gospels are telling us something very important here. This is who Jesus was in their lives. This is what he meant to them. The turnaround that takes place from John 3 to John 19 and Nicodemus skulking in by night to try to get answers that he'll never get to being able to openly and publicly 
take his body from the cross when he has been executed by the Romans and the Jewish Sanhedrin and bury it with honor. Amazing turnaround. What in the world is happening here? How does this happen? Now, we don't have Nicodemus' question, what he actually asked Jesus in John 3. We have the preamble, kind of the wind-up, the warm-up. Hey, we know that you've got to be coming from God, but we don't actually get the question that he's asking here. But imagine, it's got to be something like, what must I do? If Nicodemus is there, it's because he senses that something is missing. He's sensing that there's something more, and he's sensing that Jesus has these answers. He can tell that he comes from God, and he's not willing to shut that down for political expediency. He sees that there's something there that he needs to know. It would be something like that. What must I do? What's going on here? How do I perform? How do I find eternal life? And Jesus talks about being born again. You need to be born again if you're going to see the kingdom. And so he's equating these two things. If you're going to be born, if you can be born again, born anew, then you can see the kingdom. It's all about kingdom. Everything Jesus is talking about, that's the essential concept. Now, what does he mean by born again? Literally, in the Greek, it's born from above, is what the words mean. And so by extension, to be born from above is to be born from the top, to be born from the beginning, to be born again, to be born anew. All those are are good translations in the Greek. And so it's talking about a spiritual rebirth, of course. But Nicodemus, in the mode that he's in, is going to take it literally, right? He misunderstands. Just like the, the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well, you know, she talks about living water. She says, oh, where can I find this so I don't have to lug this jug back and forth from the village to the well every day? And he says, can someone, when they're old, climb back into their mother's womb? Okay, ridiculous sounding. That he doesn't get the metaphor is kind of like, come on, Nicodemus. And Jesus is the same way. You know, later on in, in the chapter, he says, you're a ruler of the Jews and you don't get this stuff? What's going on here with you? So Jesus restates it for him, you know. Okay, you've got to be born of water and of spirit. But what's he doing there? He's giving him another metaphor, right? Is that really helpful? Not so much at the moment, but it's the best that he can do in answering a question like this. Jesus is drawing a connection between rebirth, this born from above, born anew, and kingdom. So what we need to do is to take Jesus' meaning. We need to understand the metaphor that he's using from an Aramaic point of view, from a Hebrew point of view, and see where this takes us. And so we've got water and we've got spirit. All right? You've got to be born of both, he says. Now, what's this water? Now, if you read commentators' take on this, and these would be Christian commentators, most of them will say that the water represents a physical birth. Okay, so the water is the amniotic fluid, and, uh, and it is the physical birth that we all, obviously, have experienced. It could also be baptism. Now, baptism or the mikvah, the, the uh, total immersion, was the purification ritual that both the husband and the wife would go through. Once they were betrothed to each other, they would both go into the mikvah and they would be purified. When a high priest or another elder was going to be dedicated to a certain office, he would take the mikvah and be purified. John the Baptist was using it as a sense of purification and a, and a dedication into this new life of repentance. And so the baptism is used that way. And so many 
many uh, commentators will say, okay, it's representing baptism. That's being born of water. Or it's just your physical birth, being born of water. But from a Christian point of view, physical birth is to be born spiritually dead, right? We're born in original sin. We're born totally depraved, if you want to go into Calvinism. We're born with this gulf between us and God that cannot be traversed. And so we would need then a spiritual rebirth in order to be saved, approved by God. Now, of course, the Jews don't see it that way at all. That is not their theology. That's not their understanding or their worldview. To them, because Genesis tells us all creation is good. God sees it as good. He's created it good. It's not dead. It's alive and it's good. So what is this distinction that Jesus is making? Well, let's take a look at Mark 10, starting at verse 17. Here's another seeker coming to Jesus, but this time we're going to get his question. And we can imagine that Nicodemus was asking the same question, essentially. But in Mark 10, starting at verse 17, as Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt down before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And the man said to Jesus, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. And looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come, follow me. Come and see, right? Same idea here. So what's going on? We have this rich young man. He doesn't give us all the details here, but the other two synoptic gospels do. They say that he's rich, and they say that he's young, and they say that he's a ruler. So he's got possessions, he's got some responsibility, and all of that good stuff going for him. But at the same time, he is sincerely seeking because Jesus has a love for him. He knows that he's sincere. When he says he's followed the commandments, Jesus knows that that's true. That little play at the very beginning is is also instructive. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Good teacher, what must I do? Why do you call me good? Because he knows that what this man is doing, he's been following the law assiduously. He's been following all the tenets of his culture, doing everything that he can to cross all the T's and dot all the I's, and he still knows something's missing. And now he's going to turn to Jesus, good teacher, and he's going to do the same thing with Jesus. He's just going to follow Jesus to the letter. And he won't have learned anything. He will still just be trying to obey his way into eternal life. And Jesus knows that that doesn't work. So he puts him off. Why do you call me good? There's only one good, and that's your Father in heaven. He wants to take the middleman out. He's trying to bring this young man into full presence with his God because nothing else is going to give him what he is lacking and what he misses. And once Jesus qualifies him, because this is what's going on, he is already baptized in the sense that he has been purified according to the law. He has done everything that he's supposed to do. But he makes this explicit question. Already baptized, already purified by repentance, by legal obedience. But he's missing this thing. It's kind of like in the recovery, an alcoholic who achieves sobriety, but has done nothing to actually recover, to actually spiritually awaken, to put anything else in. We have a 
term for that. It's a dry drunk. All they have done is take away the thing that was toxic, but they put nothing in that is life-giving. And they are the most miserable people on the planet. Just be around one for five minutes. They'll make you miserable too, right? Because they've taken away the support system, but they put nothing else in. This young man has taken away everything that is toxic in his life. He is purified. He's baptized. He's born of water. But what's that missing piece? Where does that take us, right? Removing the toxic, just obeying is not enough. It's a first step. It gets us to an equilibrium where we can take the next step. But if we are sincerely seeking, as these two men were, both Nicodemus and this rich young man, then we know something is still missing. What do you seek? Now, Jesus spoke purely metaphorically to Nicodemus, didn't he? He talks about wind, and he's talking about being born again. I mean, Nicodemus has no idea what he's talking about. Now, with here, with this rich young man, he's talking practically, metaphorically. The difference is he's telling him something concrete to do, but it's still a metaphor. Did he really have to sell everything that he owned in order to follow Jesus? No. And good news is neither do we, right? We don't have to sell everything we own. What he needed to do was break his identification with everything that he owned. To break his identification with what he saw as his security blanket, his authority, his wealth, his youth, whatever it was that he or we connect with, identify with, become defined by, that's what we need to unattach from metaphorically sell, give away. Now, it probably wouldn't have been bad for him to do some of that for real, but the idea here is he's being practically metaphorical and then telling him, come and see. Once you have divested yourself of all of that stuff that is creating a filter to your reality, you won't see what's right in front of you. You're just going to see your filter. Once that is gone, come and see. But you need to do that. You need to be willing to do that. And he's not and goes away sad. He's telling us and telling him, sell it all, leave your nets, pick up your pallet, let go of the security, let go of your victimhood as well, all the reasons why not, and become born anew, born from above, from the top. That's what it's going to feel like to divest yourself of all that stuff and be back down at ground zero. So what is this born again business? I mean, it's become so... (laughs) cultural now, right? And such a popular phrase that it can mean almost anything or nothing. And so what we need to do is really get down to it. What does Jesus mean when he says born again? What does it mean out there in popular culture? And interestingly enough, you know, in Christianity, this term is really not used much outside of the United States and not really at all outside of what we have come to understand as evangelical Christianity. It kind of is in a niche, where it falls in a niche. And it sort of means being more zealous than complacent. There's a fervor there that wasn't there before. It means being more spiritual and maybe less religious, which really means that you have a personal relationship with God rather than an institutional relationship with God. Okay, So that's, that's a big distinction. It also has the connotation of being emotional, being intense, having an intense conversion experience maybe. And maybe an intense conversion experience that also gave you some spiritual gifting, 
whether it's speaking in tongues or words of knowledge or whatever, all of these things are part of this idea of being born again. And when I dropped into the evangelical church in my early 30s, those were all litmus tests. Are you born again? Do you speak in tongues? Oh, no, then we got to pray for you, brother. You know, it was that kind of thing. And so these are the, the kind of cultural things that we have done as we look at being born again. So it's kind of about intensity, passion, and feeling beyond mere ethical practice. Now, that last bit is really good because Jesus is trying to get us to the same point, whether he's redefining the law or anything that he's doing. He's trying to let us know that we need to move beyond obedience. You cannot just obey the law into kingdom as he understands kingdom. It's not going to be enough. wasn't enough for Nicodemus, not enough for this rich young man, and it's not going to be enough for any one of us. If we're going to have the ability to see kingdom, then there is a whole different quality that needs to take place. How do we see kingdom? Well, Jesus is drawing this direct line from being born again to seeing kingdom. Actually, for Jesus, to me, they're synonyms. Being born again and seeing kingdom are the same thing to Jesus. One is the other. Now, for us, seeing is remote, right? I can see all of you from here, from 15 to 30 feet away. I can see the palm trees over there. You know, we can see remotely. We can see from a distance. But for the Jews, seeing was intimate. Seeing was something that was right here. They had a different idea about seeing. So it's kind of like bringing a gun to a knife fight. (laughs) And I know I flipped that over, right? Because for the Jews and for Jesus, kingdom is close. It's intimate. It's right here. But when we think of seeing kingdom, we can do that from any distance we want, especially if we got a good pair of binoculars. We can stay at a real safe distance. But take a look, and it's so interesting that Marion read from uh, Psalm 38 this morning already. But this idea of uh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 34, I'm sorry. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see? Now, those are two verbs that we probably wouldn't put together in the West, would we? Taste and see. But taste in Hebrew, ta'am, means to taste, but it also means to perceive. And see in Hebrew, ra'am, ra'ah, means to see, but also in the sense of to enjoy, to experience, to discern, and to perceive again. Now, there is nothing more intimate And there's nothing more vulnerable than tasting something, right? Ever watch one of those movies where you know the glass is poisoned and they're starting to put it to their lips and it's like, no, don't do it, don't do it. There's nothing more vulnerable than what we actually ingest. Tasting is as close as it gets. That is really intimate. It's your face, it's your mouth, it's going into your body. To taste has that sense of intimacy. But we can't taste without seeing in Hebrew thought. To be born again is to taste, to ingest, to become kingdom. There is no safe distance from which we can actually see kingdom. There is no safe way to kingdom. We have to be vulnerable. We have to be willing to actually put it into ourselves and see what happens. This is what communion is all about, right? Jesus says, take into yourself all that I am. There is nothing more intimate than that. 
That would be tasting and seeing who Jesus is, to have him actually inside of us, becoming part of our cell structure. This is the same idea here. Taste and see. Luke picks this up at chapter 17. Take a look right starting at verse 20. The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. This is Jesus speaking. The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Now you can't see it coming from a distance, Jesus is saying. You can't predict it with signs that you can observe. The word there, the word used there is entos in the Greek. It's one of those all-purpose uh, prepositions. It means within, among, in the midst of, all at the same time. But the word behind that, actually two words behind that in Aramaic, are legao men, legao main. Now, legao means inside. It means inward. It can mean your belly, your innards, but not just of an individual, but also of a community, a group of people. It's the inmost parts. And then main means among and from, out of, by, all of these type of, of ideas that are showing some distance and some movement. So when you put legao main together, what you're talking about is a dynamic motion from inside to outside, a moving process from inside to outside. It can be looked at as the inner community. Ever heard of someone talk about the committee in their head, all those voices that talk to them in their head? You know? That inner community, all those voices, now expressing outwardly into the outward community where what your self-talk is is now being expressed in your actions with the community. Everything becoming one, an integration that is taking place where the inner and the outer lives become one life. What Jesus is saying here is that the life within, this inner life, this legal, is only as real as it is moving outward. That's the main part and expressed among and in the midst of. In other words, in service and in love. This is the dynamic motion of kingdom. Taking what's inside and bringing it outside. Connecting, integrating, making everything a whole, making everything one thing. And this motion of kingdom is not placid, certainly not complacent. It's energetic. It's even driving. I'm going to read you a, a verse that you probably not either, either read before ever, and once you hear it, you'll know why. <laughs> Matthew 11, verse 12. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. Okay, who wants to riddle me that? <laughs> What do you do with a verse like that? The kingdom of heaven suffers violence from the days of John the Baptist until now, and violent men take it by force. What in the world is going on there? Okay, let's break this down and take it into Greek and then an Aramaic thought. Because these are some difficult terms here. This idea of suffering violence, in the Greek, the word is bianzo. And then you have violent men. The word in the Greek is biastai. Now, those are two forms of the same word, and so one is going to be connected to the other. So the violence itself and then the violent men 
If we can figure out what biadzo means, we can understand what both of those words mean, what they're pointing to. And this idea of taking by force, harpazo in Greek, is to take, to steal, to capture, grasp, catch, pursue, seek. So it's got all those words, all those ideas. But it points to a real desire, something that you're pursuing, something that you're going to capture. You're willing to steal it if need be. It's that kind of intensity to it, right? Now, there's a problem here because these Greek words are not used anywhere else in the New Testament. And scholars use other places that words are used in order to help define them. You take them into different contexts, and then you can start to build a definition if you don't have one. But these words are unique in the New Testament. They're not used anywhere else. So what's the solution here? Well, first of all, the solution is to put it into the context. What's the context here? Well, the context is all about John the Baptist. It has to do with John the Baptist. He qualifies this. It's from the days of John the Baptist until now that the kingdom is suffering violence and these violent men are taking it by force. Okay, who is John? John is the one who prepares the way of the Lord. Okay? He goes before and prepares the way, just like Elijah did. Same sort of idea. In fact, he was asked if he was Elijah, right? Okay, so are there any other passages in the Bible that describe preparing the way of the Lord? And here we've got some help. Let's go back to the Old Testament and read this little passage from Micah, another one of the prophets. Micah 2, starting at verse 12. I will surely assemble all of you, Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. This is God speaking. I will put them together like sheep in the fold, like a flock in the middle of the pasture. They will be noisy with men. The breaker goes before them. They break out, pass through the gate, and go out by it. So their king goes on before them, and the Lord at their head. So here's God Here's Micah using the metaphor of sheep to show the way that God is going to bring his people together, protect them, herd them, enclose them, and then bring them out to pasture, right? And so here is this image with a breaker who goes up before them. The breaker is the one who prepares the way. The breaker is the first one that breaks out. Now imagine the scene of sheep that have been in their enclosure all night long and they are just raring to get out and go to pasture and do their sheep thing that they do, right? And so they're restless and they're jostling. The first one that breaks through the door and goes out, then everyone is following and jumping over each other. If you've ever seen what sheep do when they're trying to get out, and they're just all you know, crazed and manic about it all. This is the idea of the breaker. Now if we take the breaker, the one who goes before, and we put that back into Greek. How are we going to do that? There is an ancient Jewish-Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. It was translated from the original Hebrew in Egypt, Alexandria, probably mid-2nd century BC. And if you read Micah 2, what we just did in the Septuagint, the word that is translated as breaker, which is parats in Hebrew, is biastai. You see how we're kind of coming full circle here? The word that was used in Greek to translate the breaker is the same word that is used here in Matthew as violence and violent men. And so we can start to retranslate this. 
we realize that the breaker is not a violent or malicious person, but one who is breaking forth with energy, even violently breaking forth with this pent-up energy, with that desire. And the violence that the kingdom is suffering, the Beyonzo, is really a breaking forth of kingdom, of kingdom principles into the community. It's the same root word. We've got breakers who are breaking forth. We've got kingdom that is breaking forth as well. So when you put all this together, we can start to come up with a paraphrase. It's in your uh, handouts, but I'll just read it. Same thing. Matthew 11, verse 12. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven is breaking forth. And those also breaking forth are pursuing and capturing it. Is that the true translation? I don't know. But it's got some good ideas behind it, and it's got a reason why. It's following the rules of hermeneutics. And now it's starting to tell us exactly what Jesus was trying to say in all these other places as well, that the kingdom is legaumeng, breaking forcefully from inside to outside, and that it always starts with us. We are the breaker. We're the breaker of our own life. Who's going to do it for us if we don't do it? Who's going to leave our nets? Who's going to pick up our pallet if we don't do it? It starts with us. It is us. It's our choice to break forth with the motion of the Spirit or not. That motion, that kingdom is already here. It always was. It can't be anywhere else. It's present. And it's moving from inside out. Are we going to move with it? Are we going to break out with it? And Jesus puts even finer point on this at John 10, starting at verse 7, where he's talking about the good shepherd. I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Jesus is the door. He's the gate. He's the way. If anyone jumps over the fence or comes in or out any other way, he calls them thieves and robbers. There is no shortcut here. The only way to break forth, the only way to be able to see kingdom, to be born again, is through the door, through this way, to do the work, the actual work of the way of kingdom. And what's that work? Well, it's leaving your nets. It's selling everything that you own, everything that you think you know, leaving your securities behind or at least putting them at a lower place so that you can see over them to what's right in front of you. It's picking up your palate, picking up your victimhood, picking up all your reasons why not, all the fears that you have of the risk that is being taken to move into a place of uncertainty and follow and come and see. That's the work. And you can break it down psychologically yeah, we need to do talk therapy and we need to do CBT and DBT. You can think of it contemplatively. You can think of it any way that you want to, but the work has to be done. We need to clear the deck so we can see what's right in front of us and not just the inside of our own eyeballs, you know? Not just the pain that surrounds us, that unfinished business, that obsession and that compulsion. Now we're back to Jesus in the wilderness doing the work Paul in Arabia doing the work. There are no shortcuts. That's what Jesus is trying to tell us. If we're going to be born again, this is what has to happen. 
in order for that to happen. So when we see kingdom, right, what is it that we're seeing? What is it that we're experiencing? What is it that we're tasting? What is it that we're perceiving? Well, Jesus calls it the wind, at John 3, 8. He says, people who are born of the Spirit, people who can see kingdom are like the wind. You don't see the wind, but you hear the sound of it. You see the effects of it, right? And you don't know where it's coming from or where it's going to. It's this mysterious kind of thing, but you know it when you've felt it. You know it when it touches your life. You know it because you're left better than it found you. You're left encouraged. You're left healed. You're left more whole. We know that. Is that a force that we want to be a part of? Are we willing to drop our nets, sell everything, pick up our pallets, and follow that unknown? This is where Jesus is trying to take us. We won't see the mechanics of it. We just won't. You can ask questions for now until the cows come home. You can visit all your gurus at night with a shawl over your head, but it's not going to do you any good. The answers you seek are not expressible. We're not going to be able to understand or predict this. We won't know the cause, but we will know the effect. That we can know. We need to stop thinking about it and just come and see. Stop trying to control. Stop trying to obey our way which is another form of control, and just come and see. Just show up and come and see what happens. I wanted to read you one more little bit from a Jewish perspective to see if we can put this final point on kingdom, because if we don't get kingdom, like I said, we're always going to be knocking our head against Jesus' wall. This is from a book called Understanding the Difficult Words of Jesus. Good title, huh? The concept of kingdom is perhaps the most important spiritual concept in the New Testament. In English or Greek, kingdom is never verbal. It is something static, something to do with territory. That's in English or Greek, okay? It's never verbal. It's something static, something to do with territory. But in Hebrew, kingdom is active. It is action. It is God ruling in the lives of men. Those who are ruled by God are the kingdom of God. Kingdom is also the demonstration of God's rule through miracles, signs, and wonders. Whenever the power of God is demonstrated, there is his kingdom. Kingdom as the demonstration of God's power is echoed every week in the Sabbath prayers in the synagogue. Quote, your son saw your kingdom as you split the Red Sea before Moses. End quote. How can one see God's kingdom? It is only possible when kingdom is correctly understood as something which is verbal and not static. We see God's kingdom when we see him in action. Jesus also used kingdom to refer to those who followed him, the members of his movement. His disciples were now to literally be the kingdom of God by demonstrating his presence and power in their lives. That's kingdom. So different. Jesus is working overtime here. He's earning his dough to try to get this across to all of us. Mark 1.15 that we talked about in the first 
Sunday. The kingdom is here. It is now. Right? Luke 17, we just read. The kingdom is within and among. You're not going to see it out there someplace by observation. It is within and among at the same time, within and without, right here, right now. And then in Matthew 11, that difficult passage, kingdom is breaking forth almost violently with great energy. And we can break with it from inside to outside. These are the qualities of kingdom that Jesus is stacking up in his teaching and stacking up in the New Testament to try to get us to understand this radically different concept that will make all the difference in us being able to follow him. Kingdom is always active, always moving, and we can only see it, quote-unquote, that is, taste it, enjoy it, experience it, ingest it, when we are active and moving as well breaking out with it, in motion with it. Just as spirit is always moving, kingdom is always moving, because kingdom is spirit. We have to be in motion. We see kingdom when we see God's action in our lives. We see the effect of God in our lives. And when we see God's action, then we can say we're born again. We're seeing something that we never would have seen otherwise with our physical eyes. We're seeing something new with these new spiritual eyes that see life as God sees it. And all we have to do is be willing to come and see. That easy and that absolutely difficult at the same time, right? (laughs) Let's pray. Father, once again, gratitude. All this, all of this expenditure of energy on us to try to help us see a basic truth that eventually can turn us in your direction so that we can see your face, the effect of you in our lives and know that we know that we're moving in your direction. We're flowing with you breaking out of the things that limit us, the things that hurt us, the things that seem intractable. But with you, all things are possible. With you, we can move into these new places that will take our breath away. And anything that we think that we're losing will be completely forgotten in this new presence, this new experience of your love. That's what we want, Father. We are asking you, as these people did to Jesus, how do we find this eternal life? Bring home to us more and more that we just need to come and see. Lighten the burden and take those first steps and then the ones after that. Help us to do that more and more, Father. Right now, this year, this morning. And we love you because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's all stand.